0: Let us pray. Breathe into us your spirit of contentment that we might live faithfully into your dream of eternal life. And hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. Here now, a reading from 1 Timothy "'Of course there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. "'For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. "'But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. "'But those who want to be rich fall into temptation "'and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires "'that plunge people into ruin and destruction. "'For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil.' And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, people of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, And for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings, the Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So by a show of hands, who has been on vacation this summer? Keep your hands up. If you have been on vacation more than once, keep your hands up. Everyone else can put their hands down. If you are planning on going on vacation before school starts again, raise your hand. We are going on vacation and we're leaving this Friday and I can't wait. We are headed to Divide, Montana. Y'all, it was 79 degrees there yesterday. At 3.30 in the afternoon. The hottest time of the day. And according to the weather forecaster, it even felt like 79. It's not like here where it's 101, but it feels like 112. I don't get that. If it feels like 112, isn't it just 112? Is that some weird reverse psychology? We will stay in a lodge by the Big Hole River, we get to go fly fishing, we get to go skeet shooting, we're going to go horseback riding, we're going to spend one day at the Yellowstone National Park, which I've never been to, so I can't wait for that, and y'all, it was 79 (laughs) degrees there yesterday. This vacation is a gift to my family. We purchased the airline tickets to get us there and back, but everything else is covered. Before receiving this invitation, we had planned on more of a staycation, actually, this year. We were going to just be low-key, low-cost. You know, that's the way I remember vacations when I was growing up. When I was growing up, summer vacation was going to spend a week at my grandparents' house, or going to see my Aunt Vicki up in the mountains, or occasionally we'd go to Myrtle Beach. My other aunt and uncle had a small little place down there that they would let us borrow occasionally. I had a lot of friends whose families, they went camping for vacation every summer. Nothing fancy, nothing extravagant. You know, the Apostle Paul never officially chimes in on the virtues of vacation, but I imagine that if he did, that would be just about his speed. Low key, low cost, Nothing extravagant. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. That's what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy. He's addressing those who want to be rich. Apparently, they have become so consumed with the pursuit of material wealth that their faith has become completely derailed. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. I imagine the Apostle Paul just booming that, maybe even pounding the pulpit for extra emphasis. I wonder if the congregation sat back and said, okay, Paul, now you're just meddling. I don't know if he was or wasn't. I mean, I don't think he's just trying to squeeze every last denarius out of his people. I think he's trying to raise a valid spiritual concern. He's talking about the fact that contentment is a virtue that we are supposed to pursue rather than love of money. And it doesn't come naturally for most of us. I don't think it was any different in Paul's time. In fact, I don't think it's been any different since the beginning of time. Ever since Adam and Eve grabbed that forbidden fruit, we have all had a hard time being content. I know I do. I don't consider myself a spendthrift exactly, but I could certainly do better. I have way more than I actually need, strictly speaking. I mean, just food alone. I'm embarrassed by how much food goes bad and we throw out in our house almost every week. Fresh fruit and vegetables have become more of a knick-knack that we display for others to look at when they come by than it is an actual source of nutrition. And I'm not alone. The average American home went from about 1,660 square feet in 1973, which is the first year that the Census Bureau has that data available, to 2,687 square feet in 2015, which is the most recent year I could find data for. I bet it's bigger now. It is stunning to me how large of a home you can build on an eighth of an acre lot these days. It's huge. And even with all the square footage, we still, we still have to rent storage space for all of our extra stuff. Since 2015, the square footage of newly constructed self-storage units built each year has more than tripled, while the vacancy rate has remained about the same around 9 to 10%, so that means that we are filling up all of those storage units as fast as they're being built. We like our stuff. It's the American dream, right? Actually, the original understanding of the American dream was very different from what it has become. The phrase was coined in 1931 by James Truslow Adams, in his history, The Epic of America. Originally, and through the Depression, and even through the 1960s, while our understanding of the American dream did evolve, it mostly pointed toward an ideal, an ideal of a social order and a political structure that opened up opportunity for all people. But in the 1970s and 80s, as it became easier and easier to borrow money and as consumerism began to grow, advertisers began to co-opt the phrase as a selling point. And now, the American dream is more and more associated with material wealth. These days, it's more about stuff, it's more about convenience, it's more about leisure than it is about opportunity. As a result, the American dream has become... For many people, really, more like a nightmare. It's a nightmare because in our pursuit for more and more money, and for more and more stuff, we have become slaves to corporate ladder climbing, to money lenders, to high interest rates. I mean, lenders have made borrowing money so easy that you could very easily end up rolling last week's date night into your 30-year second mortgage that you're going to pay for for the next three decades. I wonder, is this maybe what Paul was talking about when he referred to that plunge into ruin and destruction? We've also lost a sense of the American dream in terms of it being a collective dream that is meant to promote the well-being of all people It turns out, Paul was on to something. The love of money, the pursuit of money, what money can buy, at the exclusion of all else, can be a root of all kinds of evil. It diverts us. It diverts us from our higher ideals. It diverts us from our faith. A faith that calls us to be concerned for the well-being of others. A faith that calls us to love God instead of money and to love God's dream for the world where all people have clothes to wear and all people have food to eat. It can divert us from a faith that calls us to be stewards of money rather than slaves to it. To be a steward of money from a Christian perspective means that we understand that everything that we have is a gift from God And as God's stewards, we are to faithfully administer its use. Well, Paul reminds his audience, he reminds us that you didn't bring anything into this world and you can't take anything with you when you go. And as those who are created in the image of an extremely generous and gracious God, we are called to be generous with the gifts that God's entrusted to us. A month or so ago, our director of community engagement, Kurt, preached, and he introduced the notion of proportional giving as opposed to the traditional 10% tithe. Turns out that its proportional giving is more consistent with how Jesus talked about our relationship to money. Kurt was talking about proportionality as it relates to our income, in relationship to our particular life circumstances. So for example, for a a single parent who is raising two or three children on a single middle to lower income, giving even 1% might be sacrificial or even impossible if they're making sure that their kids have food and clothing. Whereas on the other hand, an individual or a family that's earning in the upper six or even seven figures per year, 10% might be barely noticeable to them in terms of how it affects their daily living. So I've been thinking about proportionality as it relates to my vacation. I'm not meddling, I promise y'all. I've been wondering how does what I've spent, what my husband and I have spent on our vacation this year, how does that compare to what we are returning to God. How does it compare to the money that we have committed as a family to this church to support its missions and its ministries? And y'all, God has entrusted a lot to us. And I don't just mean in terms of resources, I mean in terms of ministry and mission. This congregation is very faithful in the way that it serves in the world. The missions and ministry of this church are vast, and they are impactful, very powerful. They change the lives of those that God has called us to serve, to minister to. We've been in the news multiple times just this year as a result of the strength and power of the ministries that you have participated in, that you've supported We were recognized um, for our work in Victoria, helping people recover from Hurricane Harvey, when David Graham was recognized as one of the five who care. We have been even in national news on a couple of occasions, as um, articles have come out about the work that Ann Finch has been leading us in at the border. We were on the front page of two separate newspapers in July because of our ministry around inclusion. And then just last week, we were on the front page of the Statesman again because of the work that Gerard Vandewerken and Eric Weidman have led us in in terms of our participation with Habitat for Humanity. They make an impact. The mission and ministries of this church make a huge difference. We're changing the world, and I am so grateful to all of you for your support of that. The other thing is, is these missions and ministries, they impact those who serve. They impact you and me. Each time we respond with an act of kindness or generosity or compassion, our hearts are transformed. We are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Every single time we recognize a broken place in the world or in an individual or community's life, and we respond with grace, God's kingdom touches down, and a forgotten or fractured corner of the world is redeemed. Restoration happens, salvation. There is great gain. In godliness combined with contentment, Paul says. Godliness combined with contentment has the power to change the world because when we are content, we are freed from the pursuit of all those things that rust and ruin. We're freed from all those things that we will never be able to build enough storage buildings to contain. We're freed from all of those things that we can't take with us, from those things that can lead to ruin. If we practice contentment, and it is a spiritual practice, it's something we have to do over and over again, we have to be intentional about it, we have to train, it's not always going to be fun. But each time we say, no, I don't really need that. Or, I don't need that much. Or maybe, I don't need that right now. Each time we do that, we are training, we are practicing what it means to be content with what we have. Every time we say thank you for all that we already have, each time we wonder what God's dream is for this world, We practice contentment, and the more we practice contentment, the more content we become. And as Christians, ultimately, our contentment is in Christ. He is the one we are to love. He's the one we are to chase after. He is the one we are to pursue. It's in him that we discover the greatest riches we could ever imagine. Pursue righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, Paul says. The eternal life to which we are called is lived in the presence of God through the grace and love of Jesus Christ, who is the blessed and only sovereign, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is in he alone that we have immortality. And it's to the love of Christ, not the love of money, that we are called. It's to the love that only leads to life a contented life, eternal life. Amen.